Welcome to 10 Frames Per Second, a podcast about photojournalism with photojournalists for everyone. Hosted by J.M. Giordano and Elena Volkova. Welcome back to 10 Frames Per Second. Hi, Elena. Hey, Joe. It's been a minute since we've been in the studio. The studio's getting upgraded and things, so next year is going to be great. Uh, we're going to get right into it. We have a fantastic guest today. It's uh, Claire Beckett. She's a Boston-based uh, photographer and educator, and her recent work, um, The Converts, uh, has been focusing on representation of people who've converted to Islam, and it was featured on the Huffington Post, and we usually give the, the big CV, but... Claire, welcome to the show. You've you've got so many shows at galleries and museums that I'm just going to say you show a lot. <laughs> well, thanks. It's a uh, pleasure to talk to you today. Awesome, awesome. So, Elena, do you want to do you want to kick things off? So, Claire, you you were born and raised in Chicago. Tell us a little bit about your career path. Sure. So, um, I started making photographs as a teenager. Um, I, I was actually very serious about um, pictures um, since uh, since then, but I took a number of twists and turns between that point of being a kid in the dark room and uh, where I am today. Um, I was encouraged to get a broader education. I really wanted to go to art school, but I was nudged by my uh, parents and teachers towards a liberal arts degree. So I ended up studying anthropology and um, getting a degree in anthropology and then um, going on a, a study abroad trip uh, for that degree, which really transformed my, my worldview. I had a study abroad experience in Zimbabwe um, around the age of 20. And then um, ended up after graduation um, pursuing my interest in service and um, uh, African cultures by becoming a Peace Corps volunteer in the Republic of Benin in West Africa. And then after that, I went back to school to become a photographer. So then I went for a master's degree in photography. Um, and ever since then, I've been uh, a working artist and uh, a, a photo teacher as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how did your background in anthropology and your experiences as a volunteer in a Peace Corps help you develop your interests in photography? So on one level, I think the experience of um, Peace Corps specifically was just very clarifying. It was one of those things um, when you graduate college and you don't quite know what path to take in life. And I, I decided to try the, um, the sort of international service path and also gave myself some breathing room and when I was there, I was, you know, working as a public health worker and, you know, doing my job like, you know, throughout the week. But I was also making pictures all the time. And I think just having that breathing space where I was immersed in work and in a cultural experience that was very, um, you know, intellectually stimulating. I, but yet I found myself making pictures all the time. I think it just clarified for me, like my own drive and interest was really with images and being an artist. So that was, um, I guess just a really, um, a really like transformative experience mm -hmm. for me just as a person. But, um, also I think both training in anthropology and training to become a Peace Corps volunteer cultivate the sense of curiosity about other people. 
and a sense of like some of the tools that you can use to learn about other people, like genuinely how to be interested and ask questions and make friends and learn about things that are so far outside your own experience that you wouldn't even know to ask about them. And I think that that's what the training in anthropology and the training in Peace Corps did for me, was it just allowed me to sort of be able to turn things inside out and look at them from a perspective different than the perspective I would have had otherwise. And that's just helped me so much as an artist. So yeah, I, yeah. sorry. Yeah, no, it's, go ahead. it's interesting because I um, also studied anthropology uh, school and mm. I, I it's just it's just you're, you're the first photographer we've had on that's actually brought up the correlation between studying anthropology and relationships to people like I, I learned so much in my in the non-physical the cultural anthropology classes that I took just about how to how to to deal with people and how to interact with people in, in a positive kind of way which I think every young photographer should take anthropology courses. Like, for instance, I, I have a I have a hard example. Like, my my uh, anthropology teacher, he had said uh, he he's, he was a field guy and then he became a academics. Um, that whenever he was offered something in a house, right, you come into someone's home mm-hmm. and you're always offered something, right? It's a human thing, like a cup of tea or a bowl right. or something. Right. You, you always accept it. Like, e- even if you're allergic to it or even if you don't like it, you take it because that's that gesture means that you're open to to their world. Like to, to, you know, you're open to, to them where – as and, re- and reporters, I see this all the time as yeah. a photojournalist with the reporters. No, I'm good, thank you. And 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 it sets up this weird barrier at the very beginning of a conversation. And I always, 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 and I learned this from him. And this is really, I think, important for yeah. like I, you know, hey, would you like some tea? Um, yeah, sure, I'll have some, even if I don't drink or touch that tea. Right. The right. fact that you I took it. it, yeah, and and that and that's and, and this is human culture. I don't care which continent you're on, you know. Um, this is like this is something that I think, and even like when you move into a new apartment, like I I I had this I had a roommate, and they were uh, our neighbors were very blue collar, and the neighbors had made muffins, and my roommate mm-hmm. was like, nah, nah, it's not for me, you know, and just like kept walking in the house. I was like, what's wrong with you, man? Like, are you what's wrong with you? And I went, I'm like, hey, listen, thanks for these muffins. We should hang out sometime. And I think right. because they accepted that, so it's it's interesting to hear you talk about. Your relationship to anthropology. I feel like and, that's yeah. like photography, right? That really relates to photography. Well, it does. It, 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 it ties in. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and I think so much of what you've just said in your example there is actually about the artist getting out of their own way. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, anthropology has gets a really bad rap for a lot of good reasons, right? The history of anthropology and the how it's interconnected with racial oppression and colonialism, like these things are true. Absolutely. So there's no, there's no debating that. But in terms of the contemporary applications or contemporary approaches, like just this idea of understanding if a neighbor offers you a muffin, your, your first thought should be yes, because that's friendly and opening a door rather than, oh, I don't like muffins. I won't eat one. Because that's just you shutting down an opportunity to connect with someone. But probably the uninformed person would just make that mistake, not realizing they were sort of shooting themselves in the foot with that gesture. Right. Right. Like I think it's so useful for us as artists or um, 
you know, journalists or whatever to, to be, it's just as sim- simply being more open and not, right. not screwing up before you can even get started. Right. Right. So, so how do you, how do you reconcile, I mean, what you just said, and again, you're completely spot on about the history of anthropology. Uh, how do you reconcile being that outsider and recording other cultures like that without seeming exploitive or um, appropriation, any of those things? I mean, how, how do you how do you as a photographer uh, deal with it? Yeah. So in my process, um, I'm using a large format four by five camera, so it's a very slow tool. Um, which is to say that I never make pictures that people don't want to have made because it's, it would be impossible. Like if I wanted to take your portrait, I couldn't just throw up the camera and go for it while you weren't noticing or as you sort of tried to like beg off of it, you know, because the picture would basically be ruined by a participant who didn't want to participate. So that's one thing that the process does that's really helpful, but I also think um, I spend an awful lot of time developing my projects over many, many years so that I am as informed as I can be before um, making the work and before putting the work out in the world. The um, project, um, the Converts Project about American converts to Islam has been more a research project than a photography project just in terms of the amount of um time and effort that has gone in um i've spent you know years attending a class for muslim women who are for women who are converting to islam or who are thinking about converting to islam as a way to get to know the community to get to know the issues to sort of understand how i can be Yes, I'm an outsider to that environment. I am not um, Muslim, and I am not in the process of converting to Islam, but I am a, an informed outsider who spent a lot of time and gotten to know people and gotten to know what, what a lot of the issues are mm-hmm. and what, what the highs and lows are. So I am not representing myself as being of the community, but being a visitor who has gotten to know the community very well. So how long before getting ready, how long does it take for you to get ready to take the photos? How long do you wait? How long does it take to build a relationship with someone for that sense of comfort to exist um, yes. for a portrait sitting? So I would view the the um, getting to know phase as something that goes on, broadly speaking, in a community. Like, for example, there are several different mosques where I've been photographing a lot. So each time I would get an introduction to a new community, I would probably be attending a number of community meetings and to talking with people, going to whatever sort of events they had going on that they invited me to as a getting to know process. And then any individual who I worked with, some I might have coffee with some afternoon before making an appointment for a portrait shoot or some I might have coffee with and they decide I don't wanna be photographed and that's fine. Or others I might meet and they're like, let's, yeah, let's do it. How about next week? And we make the appointment and take the pictures right away. So it's really not an um, absolute formula of how long elapses for any one picture. But I would say in general, with this body of work, I have tried to 
lead the the um, session, like set aside maybe like a four hour block of time with a person and start out by sitting down and talking and then move into the picture making over the, the course of that four hour period. That's great. So we'll, we'll call this episode 10 minutes per frame. Yeah, it takes a long time. Yeah, it's a large format. Yeah, because it's a it's large. What what type of film? I mean, what 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 kind of uh, film do you use? Sheet film. Uh, Kodak four hundred NC. Okay, cool. Film of champions. Yes. Now that we we have that out of the way, we we have a lot of four by fivers here, and we're based in Baltimore. We have a lot of uh, four by fives. So stepping back to another one of your projects uh, in training. Full disclosure, I am a vet, so I can totally relate to the photos. I was like, whoa, wait, this is amazing. Um, How did you, I guess it carries over to your other series as well, but how how did you gain access and permission to shoot in training? Because I know even as a, as a, a vet and a photojournalist, it's hard to get the army to agree to do anything. <laughs> and I was amazed at um, just how, and w- with your process, which is four by five. So um, how, how did you get the in with the, the army to, to do this? Yeah. So um, first of all, to cycle back to what we talked about earlier in our conversation, you know, the experience of um, Peace Corps training is you spend three months learning how to understand your host community and how to fit in and how to not offend them so that you can do your job. So that is basically Peace Corps 101. You also have to learn language skills and you also have to learn some technical skills for your job, but it really is a very intensive training on how to show up at a place you know nothing about, learn about the place, make friends, not offend people, wear appropriate clothing, and do your work. So I just 100% borrowed that approach in my art practice. So Mm -hmm. for the Army, um, the very first entry point was um, some reporter at a small newspaper in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is close to where I was living at the time, had gone and photographed one of the local National Guard units, or I think interviewed them. I think it was a writer, not even photographs. And somebody I knew knew that journalist and said, why don't you call this person and ask them for an introduction? So I literally just called this journalist and asked for an introduction. And they called the um, the captain in charge of the unit and said, hey, this, this art student wants to come and check out your unit. And that was just a very small door opening, a little bit, enough for me to walk in. And then it was just a process of getting to know that captain and getting to know the, um, the soldiers working for him and getting their trust. So they decided that I was all right. I wasn't getting in the way of their exercises. I wasn't, you know, insulting anyone or doing anything really egregious. And then I made pictures and brought them back and they realized I was okay. I was serious. I was taking pictures. I was following through and just being a decent human being. So from that, from there, I literally would ask for a personal referral for each additional place I would like to photograph. And then I would ask this captain if I could have the next unit I wanted to work with, call him. Would he be my reference? And if I wanted to go to an army base far away, I would have to cold cold call the public affairs office, but I would have a few... Um, people I'd worked with in the past 
who would vouch for me. So they could always call and check and make sure I was all right. And that was really it. It was a process of researching what I wanted to photograph, being ready to be persuasive and stand up for myself and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and call back and send emails and ask for referrals. And so it's just an unbelievable amount of um, like legwork. But really, I found the Army to be very open and friendly and uh, welcoming to me working with them. So it was really a great experience. Wow. Yeah. All right. it, was it not your experience? <laughs> oh, yes. It was, I mean, the Army was so nice to me. They were yeah, so I pleasant. Know. That's where you're sitting. No, it's actually, the Army is a weird, the Army is a weird organization. Like, I remember when we were shooting and you had a couple of photos of like the rifle ranges. Like, mm -hmm. we, we had, a, I'll never forget this. We had a, a deer come out in the middle of the rifle range. And and the drill sergeants made everybody stop shooting, and the drills went out and like shoo the deer away. Mm -hmm. And it was just it blew my mind that there I am learning to kill a human, but yet this deer wanders out right, and the drills are like oh I get which I was, I was great because I'm 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 not a, a killer. <laughs> it made me feel good, but it's such a yeah. So when you say that there, it doesn't surprise me that that the army was. Um, the army was like that. Uh, what, what did your subjects think of that of the series? Did you I mean has any any of the soldiers uh, got a chance to see the work? So with that body of work, I would say the soldiers always saw their pictures, and they usually saw the pictures of the other soldiers in their unit. So I would go back and deliver, you know, a huge stack of photos, so they would see all those. And um, the reaction was almost always. Um, oh, these pictures are awesome. Like, I like the pictures of my friends, but my picture's not very good. That mm -hmm. was kind of the reaction that I always got. Like, people would look at the picture of themselves and think, like, you know, I don't like the way I look, or, you know, I'm sweaty, or, or it's okay, my mom will like it. But kind of like they would love the pictures of the other people. So mm -hmm. um, I think that may maybe that's human nature a little bit, to, to not especially like looking at ourselves, but to feel good about pictures of other people. Um, <laughs> it's always the case, right? right? Yeah. I mean, I think I probably feel the same way about my own picture, so I totally get it. Can you talk a little bit about, we're, we're just looking at the series right now, um, and for our listeners want to check it out, it's, it's Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E, Beckett, two T's dot com. Um, the, the picture in the entraining series of the three individuals dressed in... The kefir, the the head wrap, and the and the long robes with the M sixteen and the flash suppressors, which really seen out. Can you tell us a little bit about what's up with that photo? Yeah, so that's a really important photograph for me. Yeah. That's the the pivotal point, the transition between the in training series, um, where I was focused on young soldiers between the time of enlistment and the time of deployment, and the, the next body of work, which is called Simulating Iraq, and that is about um, artificial Iraq and Afghanistan training environments um, in the United States military. So I had been out photographing soldiers in basic training, really trying to understand this experience of what training is and who are our young soldiers. And I literally walked through a clearing in a pine forest and came across these three figures who are wearing um, really odd uh, approximation of what Arab men would wear, except these individuals are female. So it's kind of like mixing up of cultural identities, mixing up gender identities, 
And also, um, oddly, these three individuals are in basic training, which means they have to have their rifles with them all the time. That's part of the training. But they are supposed to be depicting civilians. Like that's in in the context of that training that day. They were representing civilians so that the idea was that all the other soldiers would get the idea, wait, there's civilians around. I have to be careful and watch you know, watch where I point my weapon and all these things because these are not just combatants, but they're, they're civilians and we have to be careful. But the way it looks visually is really much more this interesting di- like discourse about, quote, terrorism, gender, and culture, right? Mm-hmm. And that struck me as a really odd mix. Um, in fact, it struck me as so potent at the moment I was making the pictures that I actually asked permission to take that picture from the commanding officer who was there. Mm-hmm. Normally with the army, they would just say, okay, here you go, do whatever you want. And I would just go walking around asking the, the people I wanted to photograph, would you mind if I photograph you? Would you pose for me? But in this case, I was so sort of like taken aback that I went a step farther and asked permission to take the picture. Cause I thought it was like maybe some sensitive, strange thing. And it turned out to be a new mandate about, um, the army trying to get their heads around asymmetrical warfare, so small-scale guerrilla insurgents who blend into the local population, and how to train soldiers for that. And this is just the beginning of ramping up that training. And from there, I did a lot of research. Um, I ended up reading a book written by the Rand Corporation, which um, laid out the whole strategy for this type of training. And I used the information in that book to shape the body of work and know where to photograph for the project. And what year was this was this picture taken of the three um, women? I believe that was taken in 2006. Mm-hmm. And what, yeah. which base was this? Uh, Fort Jackson in South Carolina. Yeah, right. Because I yeah the the pine forests are all the pine the scrub. Yeah, part of the south. Mm-hmm. The southern bases have that. So let's like that, that's an excellent segue into the simulating uh, Iraq project, going from that photo to these photos. Um, which is just a, an extraordinary series. I, I think I looked at the, the Iraq series. I, I think I looked at this about 10 times last night, just looking at it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the surroundings and, and the training and things that went into this, into this pretty visceral series? Absolutely. So this is a project that takes place on about five military bases around the United States. And they're a combination of Army and Marine Corps facilities. And they are all in some way related to this strategy of counterinsurgency. So basically, big American military uh, has to figure out how to fight street level, house to house, um, and, and deal with the civilian population. And that the civilian population is like a kinetic part of the the action too, that things can go well or badly with the civilians and then that can um, impact the military uh, outcome. So that's the sort of like reason for, of existence for the places. And I went there because I was so interested in the depiction of Arab and Muslim people in this context and a d- depiction of the architecture and even the landscape, which was at times depicting Iraq and at times depicting Afghanistan. So the facilities would sort of decide based on who they were training and where the troops were going to be deployed, whether they would be pretending to be in Afghanistan or Iraq. So 
um, yeah, I just spent a very long time going to these bases and the army actually would allow me to sleep out in the, um, in the boxes as it's called in the, the training environment. So I would just stay in the cargo shipping containers along with the role players and soldiers and, um, really get to photograph like 24 hours a day to see what unfolded. Um, so everybody, everybody in all the subjects in your pictures are the, the, the people in the military, right? So I'm, we're looking at the, uh, a, a group portraits of what appears to be Muslim women. So those are female soldiers. Uh, no, actually. No. Well, it depends. Um, is it a picture of like five women against a, a, a the, mountainous yeah, backdrop? Yeah, the ones on the yeah. fence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those are Afghan-American um, Afghan women who have been hired for the purposes of creating a realistic training environment. And so mm -hmm. they are actually what are called cultural role players. So they're supposed to be depicting a more realistic version of Afghanistan. Um, and how do they do that? Well, there's a few things that would you would notice or would need to think about right away with this. So one is that um, they're not, um, necessarily from Afghanistan. Some of them are the children of immigrants. Um, and some are immigrants themselves, but they are being asked to provide something more realistic than say female so American soldiers mm -hmm. dressed in salwar kameez, which is what you see in most of the other pictures and had salwar kameez and headscarf. So they're supposed to um, speak uh, an Af Afghan language um, and use that language around the troops and sort of demonstrate like cultural goings on that some somehow couldn't be transmitted by Americans. This is so bizarre. So do, uh, I believe there are multiple languages that are spoken in Afghanistan. Right, of so, right, right. So, so, these so yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh, I can imagine. So there, so it's really about um, intersecting uh, a cultural otherness into American training, but and it doesn't matter that the nuances almost do don't matter, right? Because we assume that soldiers don't really understand what the language anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. So there are these culturally based ideas and there's no nuance mm -hmm. and there's a lot of reasons for that I'm sure there's reasons I can't even think of I think it will be very interesting to see what a historian has to say about this in the future but um, I mean not nothing against the US military but the tasks the tasks that they have are such that I don't know that the fine grain of detail about different Afghan cultures is something that your average foot soldier is able to engage with, right? Like there are specialists for sure who know that stuff, but that information can't filter down to, to all the troops on the ground. It's just too much, I think. Mm -hmm. And do you know, Claire, do you know the history of this program? Because it's pretty fascinating. Like I don't, you know, I don't recall the government setting up uh, Vietnamese villages or favelas or wherever the hell else in the world we go, you know, 
and this is this this seems like this is Bush era, right? This is those six. So, yeah. do do you know just a little bit of a backstory of this particular program? So, um, my understanding is that there were a handful of um, trainings like this for Vietnam that came late in the war. Um, one, I remember one facility I visited in Louisiana that actually had something that they said was used to replicate Vietnam. Um, but I think that this is really um, post-Cold War that a really, really like the U.S. military was so focused on um, what would be called a near-peer adversary, like a large, a large state who has a lot of military might, um, that they lost the ability to fight small-scale wars in a really great way. And this is the response. And all the sort of cultural um, adornments or you know imperatives that came along are new and, and much more detailed. I mean, in some of my pictures, you see palm trees in the background. Right. And those are real palm trees. And those are real palm trees that were watered by a water truck every day in the Mojave Desert because wow. they would die. They're, palm trees don't grow in the Mojave on their own. Right. But so there is this layer of detail that, that was put on the training. And, you know, I, I, can't, I guess I don't know why. And that's not a, that is not me criticizing it. That is just me saying I don't really fully understand. I don't know if many people understand I mean, it's just like yeah, a caricature, right? Like, I mean, it's one step away from having camels in the back when most countries don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, race, racially and stereotypically, like, that's, that's, you know, camels, and the, but that's only in, like, one country, the entire Middle East region. But, I mean, palm trees are they're so strange. It's such a bizarre, there's no palm trees in Afghanistan. I, I know of, right? I mean, I don't, the, the climate there, it's, it's mountainous, and, I mean, there's valleys, but I don't there's palm trees that's such a so bizarre i i actually it would i want to ask this question um do you feel like the soldiers are trained to develop um understanding and compassion towards and and middle eastern culture or the opposite what is the what is the goal here I am not sure that I am in a position to know the answer to that, to be honest, mm -hmm. because if you read, let's say if you read um, novels or short stories or journalistic accounts of what the soldiers, Marines and airmen have said, right, about their experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, you will find accounts of incredibly empathetic people doing their very best to help the local population. And you will find the exact opposite as well, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a secret. That's just what's happened yeah. with these wars. So I think that um, I think there's an intent. The stated intent is to to cultivate um, knowledge for the foot soldiers, so that they are not surprised when they find themselves deployed and they can do a better job and doing a better job does include both um, executing or carrying out the military mandate and 
protecting the civilian population. You know, those two things are um, requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did they actually take away from the experience? I, I, I'm not entirely sure. Did you happen to um, have these conversations with the soldiers? Or um, I can understand, I can sense how careful you need to be in a setting like that uh, and feel always feel welcomed and always engage with the subjects to make sure they are getting something positive of the experience of being photographed. Did you yeah. did you feel like you you could have these conversations or no? So the thing that I learned from the military, one of the many things I learned, um, is about hierarchy. And I came to understand that I am a civilian, but I have to engage with the structure and the way the structure works. I don't make up my own way of encountering this structure. I find a place where I belong and I work from that point. So the place that I belong was basically with the junior officers. I was seen, I was um, seen very much when I first started out, like as a lieutenant, a lieutenant and then as a captain, as I was engaging in this process, because I was a young edu- college educated person. And I was, you know, either working on my master's degree or had completed my master's degree at this point in time. So I learned that in military hierarchy, you can be very open and direct and communicative with your peers. So the people that I had the most opportunity to speak openly with are younger officers. And that I had to be very careful to not engage in too many tricky conversations with enlisted enlisted troops, Mm -hmm. because that's completely inappropriate. Um, I, there's a sense and, you know, someone who's actually in the military would give you a better answer, but there's basically a sense of open communication with one's peers, reporting up the chain of command, the information that the chain of command wants to get, wants and needs from you and giving the information down the chain of command that those beneath you need to do their job. So it's not a personal conversation with those below or above you. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that I know the most about what uh, what young officers would would think or experience. Did you did you feel that being a woman had anything to do with how uh, you interacted with the soldiers or what kind of responses you got? So, you know, I think being a a female photographer and artist has been um, a slight advantage because I was not perceived as a powerful or influential person. I am perceived as a person who is sort of like harmless, um, maybe interesting, maybe kind, uh, maybe someone you'd like to talk with, but not someone who's threatening. And that non-threatening demeanor is definitely something that allowed people to trust me and allowed me to make my work with less difficulty than if they hadn't trusted me. That's very Um, interesting. Yeah, and definitely like not a threat to the toxic male alpha bullshit. No, sorry, no, no no threat, not not threatening. Um, And. I really, really tried to 
present myself in a way that others could relate to me, right? So mm. I would never put a political bumper sticker on my car. Mm-hmm. I always dressed in what I would say is like business casual attire. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my desert going uniform is khaki pants and a button up shirt, and that is not my art world uh, outfit mm-hmm. of choice, right? Right. But those are clothes that are safe. Uh, you don't get a sunburn, um, and you don't draw attention away from just the ordinary everyday things that need to be happening in that space. Can you, um, flipping back as I'm looking at the still look just, I don't know, these are the photos of simulating, right? There's a photo of the hanging meat. Um, yeah. is that, that seems the level of detail they went to. Okay. First of all, was it real or was it, is it, are these like plastic 3d, well, they wouldn't be 3D printing, but it would be molds, right? Like for movie yeah. props. Yeah. So, so you're exactly tapped into it. These are um, props. You should understand it as like set decoration. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the proximity of these facilities to Hollywood, um, which is, you know, a couple hundred miles away, um, they would hire film industry people to do this work. So to build the villages and decorate the villages. So this is the work of a set designer or a props person who sort of was thinking about what would be realistic to depict a butcher. And so, yeah, they're um, a combination of uh, plastic and maybe like something like paper mache. Yeah. And there's another image we're looking at is of a as a female soldier with um, looks like she just lost an arm. Is that is that a she just appears um, very calm and proud? With, right, and kind of out of nowhere, it's very jarring from the rest of the the series. Yep. So that is a a woman, a civilian woman who does not have a limb. Somehow, she's mm-hmm. a limbless person, and she was hired. By to perform as a bomb black blast victim, so there is this structure on this base that's euphemistically called the blood house, and there they would set off an IED explosion um, during the training time. Like it would go off every thirty minutes or so, and. Um, a unit, I believe, yeah, a unit of Marines in this case would have come running and um, had to sort of figure out how to help the wounded and secure the location. And this woman and another two people would be writhing on the ground with fake blood shooting out everywhere. And by the time you were done, you were bathed in blood too, fake blood. Mm-hmm. Um I have to say, this is probably the most terrifying thing I ever witnessed with the military. Um, the sensory experience was so overwhelming that it was very scary. Just the amount of shouting, you know, when people shout in agony, even if they're pretending, it's very scary for other people. So I think, you know, that's what was behind that exercise, right? It was to really terrify the people being trained so that they could get their heads straight about how they should act when they really encounter this. Wow. And maybe a little bit about 
desensitizing? Is that did you feel like that's what soldiers have to go through in order to not react in a visceral way? They kind of have to not be as sensitive or kind of getting used to seeing that. Yeah, figuring out how to cope with Mm -hmm. or um, mind over matter in the moment to get the job done. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever ever thought about going actually to Afghanistan with the troops and and recording you know in this in, in your same style the life of the actual troops living there and juxtaposed with this simulating Iraq um, series? I'd be fascinated to see that. Yeah. So um, in some ways, I remain very interested in working with our troops. Like mm-hmm. I. I strongly suspect when I finish the couple of projects that I have going now that I may yet return to working with troops again and to be more of a more of a portrait project kind of as I began with the in uh, in training body of work um, jumping off from there um, you know I haven't been interested in Afghanistan or Iraq for the sake of you know experiencing deployment or the cultural aspect of those places to photograph. I really feel that the issues that I'm talking about with the work are firmly rooted in the United States and that the work belongs in the United States in order to make, um, to point out the things I'm interested in pointing out. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but that being said, you know, the experience of soldiers and, um, thinking of soldiers as proxies for, for myself or for the civilian population, that's something that's really potent, and I don't think I'm done thinking through those things. Yeah. In in the series, the converts, um, I I understand that your experience shooting for the simulating Iraq series, um, you developed this interest for the new converts, the con the converts to Islam, American converts to Islam. Is that true? How did you pre- pre- transition from one project to the other? Yeah, so um, on the one hand, I think I um, had been I had been wondering about the experience of Muslims in America ever since September 11th, um, the original, you know, 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very, very impacted by the bigotry and hatred towards Muslims or people perceived to be Muslims in our culture at that time. Um, And I also, I was very young and didn't really have the tools as an artist to go out and make that work at the time or not to make it in an impactful way. But that, that idea had been sitting with me for many, many years. And... I think for whatever reason, as I was finishing up this simulating project, I began to notice the converts around me. I don't know if I was paying more attention to Muslims because of having been seeing these people pretending to be Muslims or if it was just happenstance. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember very vividly seeing a young woman at the grocery store in my neighborhood who um, was a Muslim convert and being very interested in her and also relating to her very deeply and not for religious reasons, but um, it was not that long since I had returned from um, serving as a Peace Corps volunteer 
And um, the transition back home is very rocky. You know, it's sort of like reverse culture shock when you come back home after being gone for a long time. And it takes a while, or at least it took me a while to adapt to the United States again and figure out what my place was here. And, you know, of the many things that return volunteers would tell you they struggle with, like one is like going to the grocery store and feeling overwhelmed by how much food there was or how many choices there would be like for something simple like cereal. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one would be like if you were living in a place with water scarcity, which I was, um, feeling like you can't take a shot, like why would you take a shower? Like I need to take a bucket bath to not waste water. Like I can wash my whole body and my hair with a gallon of water. Why would I run this shower for 15 minutes? And then the other thing that you notice about return volunteers often is their choice of clothing. Um, So like uh, you feel like they might be between one world and another. So like wearing um, athletic sandals like Tevas or Chacos with like ankle length skirts, which was what they had to wear in their host community. But really looks a little bit strange in everyday life in the United States. So this woman I saw at the grocery store had one of these mixed up outfits that really made me think of a return Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. And so I really related to her from this place of transition and being between two places. And she and I were between two different places, but that was something that just allowed me to empathize. And I think that for, for whatever reason that, enabled me to make the body of work and how did you how did you get started um we're looking at these portraits right now and they're um so solemn and strange in a way there is uh i I see like uh, otherworldly otherworldly there's a little bit of discomfort um i noticed um first thing is that they're rarely making eye contact with the with the camera mm-hmm. so there's this very strong sense of being observed and it feels like that's what a lot of muslims in our countries feel like right it's it's they're scrutinized and um questioned how did you approach this project aesthetically what you're talking about is absolutely right that there is a feeling of you know, there's a lot of joy and love in the community and in people's experiences and that like converting to slum, I would say is probably a very like emotionally um, positive change for many uh, converts. Like they really feel like they're living their true selves and embracing God and all these things that are hugely powerful. But also at the same time, I've been making this body of work where so many very hard things have happened. I mean, I was making this work in Boston at the time of the Boston Marathon bombing in the neighborhood where the bombers lived. Like, so the the women at the mosque literally were felt under siege by the media, by the public's perception of them. I mean, this was a I mean, this was a very dark dark day for members of that community because you know, they're grieving that something so horrible could happen and mm-hmm. also feeling blamed for it, which of course is not their fault, but you you can understand how they might be made to feel that it is. Yeah. And how did so, you navigate that place of being a photographer, kind of representing yeah. the medium in some way? Yeah. I mean, so I guess <laughs> like when that happened, I would definitely take a big step back and just, I would just go to the group at the mosque to support my friends 
you know, to mm-hmm. just sit with them at that time. I wasn't trying to make pictures in the aftermath of that because mm-hmm. um, it was just too much. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, when something like that happens, some people in the community decide to hide. Some people in the community decide to go out and speak their truth. And the ones who wanted to speak their truth want, you know, would volunteer to be photographed, you know, right, right around then. Cause they were, they wanted to be visible and they wanted to say something positive. So, um, that's definitely a time when as a photographer, I just need to follow the lead of the people I'm working with. It's not a time to push any agenda I might have. That's for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you asked a question about the visuals and I would say living in Boston, Many people live in triple-decker apartments, which are these three-story wood-frame apartment buildings. And many people live in rather small rooms. I mean, these homes, I lived in the exact same building at the time. There, You can't get more than a few feet away, right, because the rooms are not very big. And it's very dark because we're very north and east. So it's dark in the, um, in the winter months. And frankly, not that light in the summer months either. But... Um, so I had to use strobes. Like there was no way to make the picture. Mm. All the other work had been done with available light and maybe a little strobe just to pop some light into people's face. This I had to light completely with strobes. I think it just sort of changed the way I made the pictures and the way they look a little bit. Something in the process. I don't know that I have anything very insightful to say about that. <laughs> but it's just like, you know, that feeling is very present in the pictures. And I think it worked. So I allowed it to prevail. We have a, a kind of a, a summarizing question. What boundaries are you trying to break in your work? What boundaries am I trying to break in my work? Because I feel like there is there's this really beautiful sense of um, just the aesthetic of the images. The, the sense of light is almost like this like romantic painting paintings. You know, it's really great to to hear you talk about the use of strobes because they they absolutely have this natural window light kind of you know, almost like an annunciation scene kind mm. of sense to them. So it's interesting that you you had to light them, which it requires a lot of patience on both the part of the photographer and, and the subject. So, Well, you know, I think, I think that what happened then is I got so frustrated with this huge strobe kit and I have to bring an assistant and it takes forever and mm-hmm. better not blow out the power in these people's apartments. I mean, a lot of practical problems come with strobes. Mm-hmm. And then I just one day got so frustrated. I'm like, wait, why am I trying to imitate, you know, or make it look the way it actually looks? I'm just going to put a window wherever I want there to be a window. And from that day forward, it was just all about creating a window for myself wherever I wanted one. So I think it was very liberating. I like got backed into a corner and then found a way to fight out of it. And that felt good after the struggle. Yeah. Great. All the images are really beautiful. So are there, real, real quickly before we, I know Elena has a great question, we'll wrap it up. Are there any photographers that you that you look at for inspiration for portraiture? I I, I mean, I notice a, a few, um, just for me looking at it, it reminds me of a few, of a few different ones. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's anyone that you particularly, kind of in your early period of experimentation and trying to find your voice with this type of work, um, that you look to for, you know, for inspirational portraiture? Absolutely. Um, I would say the biggest influence for me has been Reinika Dijkstra. I 
Dr. Yes, Tucker. I know it. I know it. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, her pictures are amazing. The feeling of like youth and vulnerability and the way she works with the subjects just really um, have had a huge impact on me. So I would say she's my number one like art hero. Yeah. Um, and then like someone like Katie Grannon is, I follow her work pretty closely. I, I like it a lot. Um, Judith Troy Ross has some amazing work. Would you ever work in black and white? Cause I noticed Grannon's work is starting to uh, convert over to black and white from her early yeah. year, like American series. I mean, I wouldn't say, I would say never say never. Mm-hmm. Um, I think color it's pretty huge motivational force in my work, but um, I wouldn't rule out black and white at some point. Mm. Or, or do you you want to talk about anything that's coming up that you're working on? Because I'm really curious. Uh, the work's amazing. I'm really curious to see where you're headed next. So the thing that I'm working on right now is a book of the simulations project. So I've been very deep in that at the moment, um, trying to get that. Uh, out in the world, so that's the thing. Hopefully, to look for in the future. In the future. And is this the project you're still working on? I went back last summer and um, shot a lot of new work for the body for the project um, because I I was editing this book, Dummy, and I realized like I wanted to reimmerse myself in the work and also. Um, felt like there were a few more pictures I wanted to make. So I, I took a, another big pass at it. So that will be included in the, in the book whenever that um, comes together. Good luck to you. That's, that's yeah, thanks. Looking yeah, forward to that. And how do, Claire, how do you support your projects? Do you apply for grants? Do you get support from any foundations? Yeah, so um, I would say the number one support for my projects is having a job. You know, yeah. there's just no substitute for having a, a day job and um, being able to make work. You need money to make work. But I have also, over the years, been really fortunate to receive grants from a number of organizations. And um, that's made a big difference as well to being able to move my work forward. But uh, Is there a secret no- to that um, when it comes to grant week? Because we're, you know... Um, we broadcast over a student um, radio station college. So we have a lot of young listeners who are getting into the field. Do you have any pointers for people writing grants just quickly? Anything off the top of your head? I would say to look for grants that are available to your local community um, or to your niche, whatever that is. So like um, local arts councils can give really nice grants, maybe only a thousand dollars or a couple thousand dollars, but for most of us, that would make a big dent in getting our work done. I think that was the biggest surprise as I began to learn more about grants is like, there are a lot of local opportunities. So artists should be looking, college students should be looking in their universities, in their university community and in their home communities to see what might be available to them. And then this is like really obvious, but I think it's important, it should be said, if someone tells you to apply for something, you should probably apply for it. So like, college students, your faculty members will be pointing out things to you here and there, like a residency that might be great for a young artist or some sort of internship for a young journalist. And like, they're probably pointing it out to you because they think it's a good fit for you. So ask some follow-up questions and try to get to the bottom of that. And 
doors will probably be, be opening for you that you wouldn't know, have known to knock on. That's a great advice. Okay. Yeah. You wanna, yeah, yeah. We usually end the show with anything you're reading or any Instagrams or anything you're, you want to do a, a shout out to. Uh, what's on the nightstand? Anything you're peeking in? I have been reading. Uh, it's pretty nerdy. Probably not interesting to your audience, but I've been reading about um, counterinsurgency tactics, their success and failures. Probably uh, also reading some military culture cards about Iraq and Afghanistan to try to understand the background thinking. Any any titles? Like, you, I mean, that, I don't think it's nerdy at all. I think it's very important that you know, new photographers and photographers in general know that it's okay to read about your, you know, read up on subjects that you're... You research, gotta read up right? on your subjects. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's not it's, nerdy it's at all. It's like a must. It's a must do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I thought you were going to throw out... Yeah, I'm, I'm reading the schematics of the um, 1920 4x5 camera. Like, that's nerdy. <laughs> no, like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, but um, it's just totally relevant. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm reading a book on the history of Sparrow's Point, you know, about okay. must steel worker stuff, so... I'm not allowed to ask Elena what she's reading anymore. No, you can ask. So I picked up a book on Diane Arbus, the newest one. Oh, I, is it any good? Yeah, no, I, I don't. That. I honestly, I am not a fan of this book. Nobody was. Uh, really? Why didn't you say so? You didn't ask me. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I have to read it because I don't want to read anything else. But <laughs> but I'm like, so far, it's like, uh, it's like pulling cheese. Yeah, it wasn't a very, it, it the reviews have been pretty, pretty poor about this this guy. The the Bosworth one I think is still the standard for Dion Arbus. All right, I'm gonna stop reading. All right. Claire, we have three rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Photography is primarily a tool for understanding the world. When I look at an image, I look for light. Photographer is responsible for not abusing their subjects. Great. That's good. That's good. Well, thank you, uh, thank you so Claire. Much, Claire. We'll be putting up uh, links to your work on the website, which will carry you over to our iTunes. Um, but thanks for coming on the show. And I'd like to check back in in a year or so with you and see. These are three fascinating projects. I hope I hope our listeners really really check them out. So thanks yeah. for being on the on the podcast. Thank well, you. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Cool. been 10 frames per second recorded at WLOI radio at Loyola University Maryland produced by Audrey Gatewood and John DeBeck